Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. Today's episode, the What's Up Nod with Cameron Chalker. Hi, welcome to MDASH. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, thank you for making time to talk with me. I know how busy you are. Can we start by having you uh, tell our listeners your name, uh, a little bit about yourself, what you do, and some of the identities that you carry with you today? Sure, absolutely. So my name's Cameron. Um, one of the identities that's, I guess, most salient for me right now is that I'm an internal medicine resident at the University of Washington. Um, I'm a first-year resident, so an intern, brand new baby doc. And because that's so much of what I do all day, every day right now, it's kind of the first word that comes to mind when I think about how I see myself. But um, other words that I would use to describe myself would be um, that I am a bisexual man, that I am a transgender man, and also that I am Iranian-American. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing those with me. As you think about those identities, and you're working within a professional setting as a healthcare professional, but as you as you said, you're a baby doc. Uh, you've had more time in your lifetime on the patient side of healthcare interactions than you do on the healthcare professional side. What insights have you had now that you're a healthcare professional about the way that your identities play out in clinical settings? You know, it's pretty funny. Um, I. When I transitioned, I had a period of time where I felt really impatient and really frustrated. I think a lot of trans people have had this experience of wanting to access care and being unable to for various reasons because maybe there was a dearth of providers who feel comfortable and competent with respect to trans healthcare in their area, maybe because they don't have access to trans-affirming insurance. Whatever reason, uh, they're not able to get the care that they would like. Uh, And I definitely had that experience myself. And when I finally did get engaged with services, I felt extremely impatient. I wanted things to happen and I wanted things to happen now. Um, But once I experienced the other side of things, I think maybe I got a little bit more understanding about all of the systemic barriers that come into place. And I kind of had a little bit more empathy for the providers where I understood that oftentimes it wasn't an individual doctor who was unwilling to help me, but rather a lot of hurdles for them to jump over in order to get me the care that they wanted to provide and that I, I think, rightly needed. So I have a little bit more sympathy now these days. When you think about those experiences as a patient, was there a time when things went really, really well? Absolutely. Um, I have had some experiences with healthcare professionals that really surprised me in a positive way. Times when I felt afraid to go to a doctor, sitting, sweating in the waiting room, wondering if I would have to out myself, if I would have to explain myself, and instead encountering somebody who had a great deal of literacy when it came to LGBT healthcare. Um, I can think of experiences where I've had primary care providers not ask me probing questions, not go too much in depth, just take my name, my appearance, my pronouns on board, and then move right past it, who have helped me to facilitate access to uh, care down the line that I really needed, like subspecialty care, uh, and who have gone out of their way to make it a friendly and positive experience for me, Um, mostly through things like um, 
having a space where I could write my pronouns on an intake form or being willing to walk up with me to the pharmacy to make sure that um, questions about my testosterone prescription weren't unnecessarily probing or strange. So those were really positive experiences. So as you think about your work as a physician, what are things that you're doing differently or trying to make sure that you do with all of your patients to make sure that your patients have that same kind of experience, that positive experience? I think that the thing that I try to keep in mind most is about preserving dignity, because I think that was the thing when I had negative experiences that stuck with me the most. The times when I had uncomfortable, unpleasant, or frankly, unacceptable encounters with healthcare professionals were most often the times when I felt like my body was being treated as a spectacle almost as like a grotesquerie, something really outlandish and strange and disgusting. And I took a lot of shame away from those experiences, and I never want to replicate that with patients going forward. I try to be really cautious about the fact that everyone brings different experiences to the table. People might have fears about encountering healthcare that I'm not aware of. And even patients outside of like the LGBT setting, maybe patients who are disabled or who have or patients of color who, for some reason, have bodies that might be outside of what um, the medical establishment thinks of as the norm, might feel really uncomfortable. And the last thing I want to do is to exacerbate that in their interactions with me. Hmm. So now that you're a healthcare professional, what's your sense of electronic health records? <laughs> do you feel like it's, um, I, I'm just curious if you feel like it helps facilitate preserving dignity or if there are barriers there that make it hard for you to practice in the way that you want to, to help everyone feel affirmed? It is, I mean, that's such an amazing question and it's difficult for me to answer because I have such complex thoughts about it. Um, to give you a little bit of context for myself, I did my medical training in the Republic of Ireland uh, at a school called the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland. And uh, the experience I had there was a little bit different than possibly some medical trainees here in the United States, because um, I overwhelmingly didn't have access to an EMR there. I worked off of paper charts. And so I am very used to walking to the end of the bed and picking up a paper chart or meeting a patient and having very little background information to inform my interview with them when I first encountered them. Um, and then when I came to Washington and I began my internal medicine residency, all of a sudden now I'm encountering Epic and Cerner and CPRS and all of these other modalities um, that you probably have a lot of experience with yourself. I'm going from having no information to having this huge glut of information. And sometimes that's really difficult to navigate. On the one hand, when I'm able to open up a patient's chart and I see right away that they're transgender, it allows me, for example, it allows me to take a moment and to say, okay, I know that they may have had certain experiences. I know that I need to be cognizant of their pronouns going into the room. I know that I want to be cautious in the way I ask certain questions and less cautious in the way I ask others. But at the same time, if I encountered that patient um, in a setting where I didn't have EMR, I might have never known because they, like myself, are somebody who is like well past the initial stages of medical transition and are living fully as their you know, identify mm -hmm. gender. So I've accidentally outed them. So it's it's a really difficult balance. Um, I don't know whether whether it's always good. I think about somebody opening up my medical records and knowing that I'm transgender. 
I know that that will color their perception of me sometimes in ways that I don't want. I maybe don't need them to know that I'm trans when I'm coming in for my sprained ankle urgent care appointment. So it's tough. So I have so many questions. Um, One of them is, as you think about interfacing with healthcare on the patient side of things, how often are you asked like an organ inventory or a thorough history that isn't that isn't trans-focused, but seems to be something that is standard practice for the clinician who's talking to you. Because we, we, you know, we train clinicians, you should be talking to everyone about, you know, getting a sense of the organs people have versus, you know, only asking certain questions of trans patients. What's your lived experience as a patient? I have to... Or is it really, does it only come up if you share it? I have to say that um, I've my personal experience is that it's only ever come up if I've shared it. I'm very fortunate. I have the relative privilege of, you know, I, I live as male. I identify as male. I'm taken as male. I I pass, so to speak. And um, that means that if I do walk into an urgent care and I don't share that um, I have transgender experience, then oftentimes uh, I'll be assumed to be cis. And those questions are never asked, never, never, never asked. Um, whereas if I'm going in to see a provider and I lead with the fact that I'm transgender, maybe because I have a trans relevant question or because I'm Mm -hmm. there to refill my testosterone prescription, or simply because I feel like it's a salient part of my medical history and I want to be open and honest with the provider, Mm -hmm. um, then I pretty much immediately get the organ inventory as you put it. (laughs) Interesting. Because the reason why I'm asking is, you know, I, I know quite a few folks who live and I, I, I hate to use the word pass. I know you heard my no hesitation saying know. it as well, but sometimes. Yeah, no, no, I, I struggle with the same thing. I think uh, maybe a turn of phrase that would work, that I would feel more comfortable for myself using, because when I use the word pass, it, it doesn't, I don't know why, but it doesn't feel good for me to say it. For, for individuals who live as their true gender and no one would in any way imagine a different past for them than the present that they see right now. For those patients, I wonder, you know, when someone is 40, 45, 50, and they're going to their provider, will they necessarily be told about the screening tests that are relevant for them? Um, Given that, you know, depending on how long they've known their provider, their provider may not necessarily know that much about their history. So that's why I was, I was curious about uh, the organ inventory piece, because I think often it doesn't get, it does not get asked. Um, It was such a good question. And I think it really highlights two issues for transgender patients. The first is exactly like you say, that if they are living as their identified gender and their provider isn't aware of their history, those things just get missed entirely. Uh, I'm more mm-hmm. likely to be asked when I'm in my 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s about getting a PSA done with all these right. sides about whether or not that's clinically relevant right. than I am about, you know, um, maybe being aware of some of like getting a DEXA scan, for example, for my bone right. health, uh, even though I underwent female puberty, so to speak. Um, right. But also then on the, even when patients are, Rather, when patients do disclose that aspect of their identity and their healthcare providers are aware, even then there's a lot of confusion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And understanding what scans people need. And, you know, we certainly see it 
with cis folks as well. I mean, depending on who someone has sex with, there's not always understanding about things like anal paps and there's not always understanding about what tests are appropriate for whom, like how do we keep people healthy? So I think that there are, there's certainly gaps in terms of the quality of care and the onus should never be on the patient to have to disclose every single thing if providers treated every patient as though they may be coming with a wide range of experiences that include potentially being of trans experience. Right. Um, so, okay. So I'm super curious about your time in Ireland and, and what it was like for you as a provider, but also what it was like for you as a bisexual man, as a trans man, as an Iranian American man, like I'm super <laughs> curious, what was that like? Um, well, I hope that my answers are interesting. I can't promise that they are. <laughs> it's okay. The answers don't have to be interesting. I'm interested either way. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, it was an amazing time of my life for me. Um, when I first moved out there, I actually had not, even though I held my identity as male, I had not begun medical transition. So I experienced the act of transitioning while living in Ireland. Um, but obviously some things about me didn't change. You know, I was always a bisexual man and I was always Iranian American. So um, I definitely, all of those aspects of my identity, I had to renegotiate and relearn in the context of now um, experiencing broader Irish culture rather than broader American culture. Um, it's funny, Ireland at the time when I moved was undergoing, in my opinion, and I, some of, if you have Irish listeners, they may correct me, but my perception of it was that a really great cultural shift and a shift, maybe some might say to the left, uh, in the last couple of years, maybe the last 10, 15 years or so. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that, uh, traditionally, the Republic of Ireland has been a very Catholic nation and um, Catholic institutions have been deeply integrated into Irish life, into Irish schools, Irish hospitals and Irish societies. But unfortunately, as a lot of the data and the stories have come out about people who suffered really terrible abuses, unfortunately, um, over the last number of years, like the unwed mothers and the young children and some of the sexual abuse that's happened in the Catholic church, there was a lot of distress in Irish society because there is the realization, I think, that uh, this institution that was supposed to be the safekeeper of Irish lives was in fact fallible. And I think that that led to something of a reactionary pull away from a, maybe a more conservative Catholic identity into uh, a sense of Irish people questioning how they feel about Irishness independent from Catholicism. And a lot of Irish people, I think, started to ask themselves, what does it mean to be Irish? What does it mean to be a member of Irish society separate from the Catholic Church? And there was this great big swing, I think, away from more conservatively held beliefs and more religious beliefs towards um, a lot of openness, a lot of uh, acceptance of like LGBT issues, maybe more conversations surrounding things like women's rights and um, abortion and the right to terminate a pregnancy. There was recent legislation that was passed uh, surrounding that. So there was this big leftward shift kind of just as I was coming into the country. And I explain all this basically to say that arriving in Ireland in that time was really exciting 
because I felt a lot of the energy of like young people and of liberal ideas that were kind of flying around in the air. Uh, and it made my experiences, I think, a lot more safe because um, when I first arrived, I felt afraid, perhaps biased by stigma, that because of uh, Ireland's Catholic history, that I wouldn't find a place for myself, that I wouldn't be accepted, uh, that people might look at me sort of askance or, or not be able to understand who I was. But in fact, more and more conversations were happening about sexuality and gender identity and about, um, you know, about being a person of color and about uh, being from different ethnic backgrounds and all that stuff all at the same time. Uh, and so I found that it was a little bit easier to, to exist in that space. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. As you, as you came back, so I'm trying to think about timing of when you would have been interviewing for residency. That would have been uh, just about one year ago. So as you embarked on the process of interviewing for a residency, how did your trans identity play a role or did it? And how did you navigate that? And I asked that question because it is something that I know that folks as they're looking for residency struggle with, like how much if someone identifies as LGB or if they identify as, as someone of trans experience, do they talk about it in their interviews? Do they acknowledge it? Do they, how do they investigate whether this is a safe or friendly culture? How did it play out for you? It was a huge part of my residency application process and a huge part of my thought process as I went through medical school and as I entered residency. Um, I suspect, as you say, I'm like not alone in that, that it becomes a concern for a lot of people. I know that I really wrestled with twin urges. On the one hand, I had gone through, a, with a lot of difficulty, um, I had medically transitioned, I had surgically transitioned, I had socially transitioned, I had legally transitioned, and I had um, put all of that time and energy into going through that, and I felt like I was finally on the other side. I had this huge breath of fresh air where I felt the profound daily relief of not having to live with the act of misgendering or with as much mm -hmm. gender dysphoria, and I really wanted to leave all of that behind. But on the other hand... I couldn't deny that it was a part of my lived experience and a part of a significant way that I saw myself and something that informed how I interacted with the healthcare system. Um, and I felt pulled, do I disclose my transgender identity or do I play it close to my chest? Um, I was afraid that if I talked about it, that I would open myself up to stigma and discrimination, but also afraid that if I didn't share it, I would misrepresent myself. And I mm -hmm. just, I was so torn. Um, at one point, I even asked um, a program director or possibly associate program director of a program that won't be named, I asked for advice and I said, do you think I should share this? Do you think I mm -hmm. should say something? And uh, that person said to me, oh, I don't know. I mm. wouldn't. And it was very, very clear in my interactions with them that they felt like it would be a detriment, that they felt like it was still too strange that it possibly wow. made me a liability um that it would be something that uh residency direct directors and people involved with programs might find to be off-putting at best and that gave me a lot of pause wow yeah. 
Um, that must have been hard to hear. It was really difficult. I had to do a lot of soul searching because I'm somebody who is very invested in my career. Being involved in medicine is really important to me. I really, really love what I do. And I wanted to be involved with the best program possible and get the best training possible. Um, so I was afraid to compromise my career in any way. But on the other hand, um, I thought about myself and I thought about my past self. And, you know, sometimes people say when they're giving advice to people going forward, be the person that you needed, you know, back mm -hmm. when you were first getting started. I thought about how afraid I was to transition and to come out because I had never seen a transgender healthcare provider. And I really believed in my heart for a very long time that it was impossible to do both. There wow. was just some part of me that thought these are identities that couldn't possibly oversect. They're mutually exclusive. You can't be trans. You can't be a member of the LGBT community other than, you know, maybe one or two good gays, trademark, trademark, <laughs> trademark, that are the exceptions right. that prove the rule. If you're anything outside of that, you, you simply can't be a doctor because doctors are supposed to make people feel safe and inherently you make people feel uncomfortable. So. Wow. That's powerful. I, I, I never wanted to make people feel distressed just by being in the room, but I felt like that was how I would always be as a bisexual person, as a transgender person. And when I finally made it, to a place where maybe I had enough confidence to say, no, I can do this. I can interact with patients and I can interact with other healthcare providers. And, and I'm not, you know, disgusting. I, I can still bring comfort. Maybe I can even bring an additional comfort because of my experiences. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had um, a responsibility to share that. Wow. I mean, when you bring your authentic self to the clinical setting, that is, the most powerful gift that you can share with patients who might otherwise be feeling invisible and feeling like there is no potential to become a, a trans health provider, a bi health provider. And so by you having taking that step, you'll probably never know how many people you positively impacted, but I am sure it's a lot. I'm really hoping that I'll be able to I don't know. I think a lot of LGBTQ people have had this experience when they're walking down the street and they see somebody that they recognize as being a member of the community. And there's a part of them that wants to make eye contact and then point to themselves yeah. and say, me too, me too. You're yeah. not alone here. You don't want to out yourself in every situation. You don't want to draw unnecessary attention to this aspect of your identity because sometimes you just want to live your life and, and set right. these things aside. But you also want to give people that little what's up nod that says I'm here mm -hmm. with you. So it's, it's a tough balance. Well, and it is interesting. I mean, I think about for my career, I've been out forever and have been public, like, because I not only identify as a lesbian, but I also do LGBTQ work and I'm a loud mouth on Twitter. And so like, I couldn't not be out. Like it would be very hard for me <laughs> to, to not be out but in those windows of time where there's an interaction where it would be unnatural. And I say unnatural in terms of not, I am unnatural, but the flow of conversation right. would be unnatural for me to work it in. I definitely do feel that moment of like, wow, when you're invisible, it means you also are invisible to the others who might 
who you might be able to connect mm-hmm. with. So to be able to have that outness and, and to recognize others says they're also able to recognize you and see someone that they can identify with. And particularly for folks interested in going to medicine, thinking about a career in healthcare, I am sure that when they see you and know you, that it will give them a sense of the possibility for themselves as well. I hope that that's true. I try and keep that in mind as I interact with people because, you know, I say that and I, I'm really, I guess, talking a little bit aspirationally because I don't come out every moment of the day. Most of the time, sure. I'm just walking around doing my thing. And like I said, I'm usually assumed to be a cisgender man. Um, and, and that has its own privileges as well. And it has its own perks too, not just in that I sometimes escape discrimination or prejudice, um, or just a little bit of gawking. But also sometimes I think that allows me to act as a liaison with uh, mm-hmm. cisgender providers who maybe don't have as much comfort or cultural competency with the LGBTQ community who feel hesitant about interacting with their transgender or otherwise queer patients. Um, I feel like sometimes it gives me a little bit of an in where I can say like, oh, hey, yeah, like, don't worry, I'm, I'm safe. I'm, I'm one of you. So it lets me kind of straddle that line of being maybe safe to uh, cisgender or heterosexual providers and also safe to um, hmm. LGBTQ patients, I hope. I apologize in advance. One of my dogs uh, is trying is is wanting to bark at me. She's wanting to participate in the podcast. Say hello for right me. <laughs> Can't say hello. Um, you know, as we think about stigma and discrimination, you know, a lot of times within the LGBTQ community, we are talking about stigma and discrimination in the part of um, heterosexual and, and cisgender providers and others. But I want to talk a little bit about discrimination and invisibility within our community and communities. And I'm curious as to your thoughts about whether you felt more, I don't even want to say stigma, but like pushback from people in the community around your trans identity or your bisexual identity. That's a good question. I'm going to have to think about it for a moment. I came out as bisexual when I was much younger than when I came out as transgender. I came out as bisexual in my teens. Um, I came out as transgender in my teens too, but in my, in my late teens. Um, and I think that I, I'm somewhat biased in answering that question by the time because, mm-hmm. because of the gap of several years between those two experiences. Um, maybe the culture was in a place where or maybe just because I was a teenager, I felt like coming out as bisexual was at times a very dangerous or, or radical act. Um, it, it wasn't. Now I kind of look back and I laugh and I think, oh my gosh, as a teenager, everything feels so life or death. Everything feels so, Mm -hmm. uh, so difficult. But, um, I felt like I had a, I was afraid of pushback a lot at that time. Um, when I came out as transgender, I definitely did experience a lot of overt pushback um, from well-meaning people in the community, certainly, who I think were trying to affirm my identity without having a good understanding of what it means to be trans. Um, Interesting. More so than I think I experienced um, like out-and-out discrimination or harassment. Um, I had a lot of friends who were really, really kind, who really wanted to support me uh, as I 
explored my gender identity, who um, would make comments about me. An example would be something like um, being told that uh, I look really dapper or that I, I was a, like a cute tomboy or something like that when I was like really trying to put forward that I didn't hold a, a butch identity, but rather that I held um, a male identity, stuff like that. Got it. Where it was maybe people who were really trying hard to support me, but didn't quite understand the nuances of my, of my sense of self right. or would, um, would tell me that, um, you know, I was involved in a lot of feminist circles, for example, and I would say, oh, well, I'm a transgender man. And people would say, well, you, I'll always think of you as female, or I'll always think of you as like wow. one of us as a girl trying to say, oh. because I, I know that you are an ally to women. I know that you are, um, that you take ex like special care to um, stand against toxic masculinity. I think that was the idea that they were trying to convey. But what they would say was, is, you know, you're, you're different from men. I'll always think of you as in group amongst women, which gave me a little bit of well, pause. Well, and that's not affirming of who you are because I think they're missing the opportunity to recognize that there there's a third option other than you know contributing to toxic mas masculinity or or being um, you know a feminist or a feminist lesbian. There are also men. <laughs> Who are fighting toxic toxic masculinity and they're and by pushing you into this box of if you're good you must you know I'll always think of you as a woman it's such a it's a cruel lack of recognition of of your value as an individual right and a lack of respect for your gender identity it's tough you know I think that I really want to make it clear that I know that those people when they said things like that um, were acting in good faith and that they were. Oh, trying absolutely. to communicate a lot of love and respect for me and that they were trying mm -hmm. to um, tell me that they found me trustworthy, which is something that I really cherish mm -hmm. and I find really important, you know, going forward to have women say, you know, I feel safe around you. That's, that's huge for me. But yes. also, <laughs> as you say, it maybe doesn't quite capture a good sense of um, myself and my gender identity. And it, it can be kind of a slightly alienating <laughs> experience. Well, and it's putting it's putting the emphasis on the importance for women to be able to feel safe with men, which is important, but it's forgetting the fact that it could make you as a man not feel safe to be yourself with them. And so, um, yeah, it's it is so tough. Uh, periodically, I will stumble across some of the trans exclusionary radical feminists on uh, Twitter. And the degree of animosity toward trans men and trans women is, it just makes me so sad. You know, it, it makes me, it, it saddens me because I think it's, it's a missed opportunity for all of us to recognize and value the humanity in one another without building walls. It's, um, it's really baffling stuff sometimes when I encounter it. I'm always taken aback by the degree of vitriol that seems to have sprung up out of nowhere, most often directed at transgender women who are seen mm -hmm. as, you know, interlopers or dangerous people coming in, you know, snakes in the grass here to attack it, heavy quotes, real women yeah. or children oh. or something like that, which is just so bizarre and not grounded. In well, and it's not an, and yeah, not of grounded evidence. In fact. Yeah. Um, 
No. And then transgender men are seen as these um, traitors to feminism, traitors to womenhood, uh, at worst, at best, you know, as deluded pretenders who need some degree of saving. I mean, there's people out there who, I mean, I certainly encountered it when I was young and I was thinking about transitioning all of these very hateful websites that talk about how, you know, trans men are delusional or that they, you know, are are letting down women and that they inherently, uh, by having male identity, are turning their backs on, on, not on femaleness, but on like uh, feminism or on affirmation as women as a whole, excuse me, affirmation of women as a whole or uh, gender equality. It's just like bizarre stuff. Well, there's so much hate in the world. There's no need for us to create more of it by, you know, by directing it at people who are just trying to live their lives. Um, You know, periodically I'll run across people making the, the very weak argument that, that trans men, you know, if with the increased acceptance of folks transitioning, the world will not have any more butch lesbians. And it's like, oh my God, there's plenty of butch lesbians you go around. We're fine. Like there's no risk. I'm not worried that the, you know, the cosmic uh, balance of the universe is going to be thrown off because people can live their lives as a, as a trans person. So I think any of these arguments that are pointing at if, if people are allowed to live their lives happily, it will somehow ruin the world. Those arguments are weak. It's such strange um, stuff. I, think- I For people who put those arguments out there seem to not have a great degree of literacy in their own history. Yeah. I mean, if you yeah. read like Stone Butch Blues, you can mm-hmm. see that people have had access to, I mean, again, heavy air quotes around access, but, um, but transgender people have existed alongside um, butch and lesbian identified people for decades and decades and decades Absolutely. and the people who want to transition have transitioned and the people who don't want yes. to transition haven't transitioned and the people who live in the liminal space in between have straddled those lines and navigated that aspect right. of their identity for years and years and years and the fact that right. now there's one or two transgender people in the public eye and there's been a little bit, a smidge more acceptance of transgender identity has in no way negated that or accelerated it or changed it at all. I agree. I totally agree. Well, I think one of the, you know, for myself as a, as a cis lesbian, you know, I see oppressing me for myself. I can't, I can't put anything on anyone else, but I try to put myself in the spot where in anywhere where any space where I'm advocating around LGBTQ issues, a part of my job, or I see part of my job is making sure to pull up a chair for people of trans experience to be at the table as well. Um, because there has been this history of, of, you know, it, all, all different kinds of groups speaking for others. And I, I think when we talk about the trans communities, they're terribly marginalized and, we need we need to make sure that people of trans experience are at the table as we're talking about things like healthcare access and healthcare quality and um, because I as a as a lesbian, while I can absolutely advocate for greater inclusion, I cannot speak with the authority of someone who has walked that path. And there's room at the table for all of us if we're willing to pull up chairs for other people, and uh, we have to be. You have to be more assertive about doing it. 
and saying, hey, I'm not going to do this unless we make sure that there are people at the table. I have to say that's something, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that I have to say that's something that I really appreciate about speaking with you and about seeing some of the work that you do. It's tough, I know. Sometimes I think allyship is seen as a little bit of a dirty word these days. Um, (laughs) But when it's done right, it has such a profoundly positive impact on the experiences of, I think, everybody, both by increasing exposure to communities unlike yourself and also allowing for different voices to proliferate. Because just being affirming of somebody doesn't necessarily mean that that person's voice is then going to be heard. It's really tough. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's so hard in healthcare sometimes. An experience that I've had recently is that I see a lot of, again, extremely well-meaning people talking about transgender healthcare and transgender bodies and experiences of trans persons. And they themselves are cisgender. And I think that that is mm-hmm. okay. That's in fact wonderful because we're coming from a place where uh, nobody was talking about it and where everything was in the shadows and there was absolutely no education. So I'm really, really glad that more and more cis people are cognizant of uh, transgender experiences and are thinking about them as they approach their patients and they approach their education and whatnot. But at the same time, sometimes I notice the what appears to be the absolute lack of transgender people represented amongst Mm -hmm. those speakers. And absolutely. I like, I say that in no way to pass judgment on the cisgender people who are speaking, because I think they're doing something really valuable. um, And accessibility is so important, but there has increasingly been a part of me that starts to think maybe does is it right to to speak about us without any of us being there? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is, it's one reason why whenever there's a panel and anyone asks me to be on a panel, I have learned to ask who else is on the panel. And in, invariably it is a potpourri of white cisgender people. <laughs> um, and, and in no judgment against white cisgender people, I am white, I am cisgender, um, but having a, you know, a white gay man and a white lesbian speak to LGBTQ issues isn't okay. Um, And so I have started saying to folks, okay, there needs to be at least one trans identified person on the panel, and there needs to be diversity in terms of racial diversity. Um, And if you don't know anyone to invite, I can provide you with a list of people who might be available. but again, you know, it, it's difficult because the other piece is recognizing the financial vulnerability of different populations and recognizing that it's not always feasible for folks who are underemployed, as many trans folks are because of discrimination. It's not easy for people to just fly across the country and do a talk. And so my consistent message when it comes to hiring trans speakers or speakers of color is please pay people to do this work because we cannot expect to continue to have our learning be on the backs of those that we're trying to do a better job serving. We can't, it's not fair to do that. And so I've certainly seen that as a challenge in terms of being more inclusive of trans populations on on panels and in other places where you have a variety of speakers. We have to recognize that just as there's disproportionate impact on 
people's employability sometimes because of discrimination. There's also disproportionate inability to just pay their own way and travel sometimes. So if we really want to be inclusive, we have to be open to uh, putting our money where our mouth is and, and, and paying the resources needed to bring people uh, to different speaking Absolutely. And thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's so, it's really challenging. I know that, you know, these panels have financial crunches themselves and whatnot, but, mm-hmm. but we, as you say, we simply run into a limit of the amount of knowledge that we can disseminate if we um, are not able to make that allowance in order to allow people of different experiences to put their voices forward. And unfortunately, right, the, right. the truth is, is that people who um, experience a lot of intersectional marginalized identities are more likely to be underemployed or more likely to not have access to the kind of resources mm-hmm. that they need in order to participate in those things. They might need additional support to get their voices out there. And once their voice is out there, hopefully that can help to break down the system. Uh, systematic barriers that put them in that position. But until that happens, until we provide that boost, I mean, it's a self-perpetuating cycle and it's really challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, and it is so tough because uh, within academic conferences, I mean, people always say, oh, we don't pay panelists. And absolutely, like, I don't need to be paid. I'm employed as a full-time academic. You know, if I'm doing an academic presentation, that's certainly something that is furthering my my career, as well as, you know, hopefully benefiting the community. But there are people that if we want them to be, even at academic conferences, we have to be open to providing more supports than we do currently and not taking the approach of, well, we don't pay everyone, so we can't pay anyone. No, we, we, do, we, need, we need to do better because unfortunately it is um, heavily white and cisgender at many conferences and uh, we, we miss out on hearing from the people who we really need to hear right. from. It's like that cartoon that everyone shows around in their like eighth grade social studies class of the children standing on boxes to demonstrate yes. the differences between equality and equity. And exactly. exactly. Um, yeah, no, I love that. I love that. I love that drawing because it really does help people. It's very powerfully it. illustrative. Yeah. It's simple, but it communicates the idea so well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because I also, you know, I I want to say here I am, I I can speak, I can share my experiences, but I I can't represent the entirety of the community myself either. I'll never know sure. what it's like to be a transgender woman. I'll never know what it's like like to be um, black and transgender in America. I'll never know what it's like to be one of the many transgender people who participates in survival sex work. Um, Mm -hmm. And those are all things that um, without having a a robust knowledge of those experiences, you really can't say that you understand the transgender community. Right. Well, and because you, I mean, I think a key element is all of us have to have the humility to say, I can speak about my experience and I can't, there's so many experiences I haven't had. And I think that that is where within the LGBTQ community, we in general, we don't always do a good job of saying, these are my identities and I'm speaking to this, but I, I can't speak for everyone who shares my identities and I can't, I, I can't possibly represent what someone else's truth is um, because it is so different. And LGBTQ, we kind of lump all the letters under one umbrella, but there are so many communities and worlds of experience contained within that acronym 
that it's it's just so tough for anyone to speak uh, and no one should speak for all experiences. It's wonderful though to be able to imagine a future where I will no longer go to panels and see nobody in the community there sitting up on the yeah. stage. I, I see it increasingly. I mean, you tell me that you are actively advocating for that and that is just so amazing, so powerful for me to hear because as recently as, you know, this past year, I have had experiences where I went to talks about, I feel like I keep talking about transgender things, but I've gone to talks, That's okay. <laughs> I've gone to talks about transgender healthcare and felt like a spy sitting there in the audience. I, wow. I don't know how many transgender people were sitting there, but these would be talks that were aimed at healthcare providers. Um, and I would look around and I would think, is there anyone else here? they don't know that I'm representing the other side of the curtain as well. I'd be peeking behind. Right. And the expert speaker that would be there to represent trans voices would be, um, like I had an experience where it was a transgender patient's parent. Um, uh. And I was like, that is fine. I really, I want there to be spaces for transgender patients' parents. I know that my parents took a lot of solace in parent groups and really were searching for that when I was transitioning myself. But at the same time, I was like, is this really the best that we could do? We couldn't get a single, we couldn't get that person to come up here. We could only get their <laughs> well, mom. That's the t well, and there is that that tendency, the shift of like having folks who are parents speaking to their children's experience. Um, I've been pretty consistent with my podcast. I only want to hear about people's experiences themselves. So I, if someone's experiences are, they want to talk about what it's like to be a parent of someone with a disability or a parent of someone who's trans, that is very different than talking at all about the experience of having a disability or the experience of, of being trans. And I think sometimes that line gets blurred something somewhat personally, and I'm not basing this on literature. This is just my gut sense. Moms in particular are so palatable. Everyone loves listening to a mom. Um, and it's less, it's less uh, real than listening to someone's lived experience themselves. Um, and so I, I think it can be a cop-out to have a have a mom of a trans person instead of a trans person uh, because it's really infantilizing the trans experience. It's saying, you know, we want to hear about this, but through a, through a mediator, um, through, through a parent, because parents are someone we care about. And I know that's not the intention when people have parents as the, you know, only representation of the trans community. But I think that's potentially the impact. If you can't possibly find a single trans person who will come and speak, you can only find someone's mom. That doesn't, that's not good. Right. And unfortunately, I think sometimes it biases um, healthcare professionals' perceptions of um, transgender people's ability to thrive. And I think this yes. is more broadly true of the LGBTQ community in general, probably was very true of gay, lesbian, and bisexual identified people even just a few years ago. I think increasingly less now, thank goodness. But the idea of the transgender person or the queer person in general as being a tragic figure, as being mm -hmm. somebody who is suffering, somebody who needs support, somebody who is unable to stand on their own two feet and who will never be successful 
in all aspects of their life because they have this this one mm -hmm. Achilles heel, this aspect of their identity that will forever stunt them. That isn't, I don't think, the best way to conceptualize us. I mean, it does infantilize us, but I think sometimes that can mm -hmm. happen a little bit when you exclusively talk to the parents of people who are early yes. in coming out, who are right. newly navigating well, the experiences of having to renegotiate your child's gender identity and name and pronouns and having to think back right. on the cherished memories of childhood and realize that maybe there was an aspect of their like really beloved baby that they weren't aware of mm -hmm. there's a lot of conversations right. about you know mourning the death of the boy so that you can accept the birth of the girl or whatever 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 and i think that that's a, a reasonable thing if that's what that person needs to to cope and to better understand their child but also i think it can make it so that um like people whenever they interact with the trans community um and healthcare providers in particular are always thinking about somebody who is dying somebody right. who doesn't possess the ability to um to live and exist and be independent and fully actualized and to love themselves uh and to really do it's well it's a tragedy to be mediated in some yeah. way like yeah i i agree and i i think the narrative unfortunately and this isn't just specific to the trans community, but thinking about parents of lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth and adults is that when the narrative becomes like their journey to how they accepted this person, that really their job is to unconditionally love and accept them no matter what. They're, the Hearing so much about their journey really robs us of the chance to hear about the really important journey, which is the journey of the person who is who is going through this, you know, who is figuring out their identity. And I think the other thing is it reinforces this idea again of the tragic, um, you know, the tragic narrative. How often have you been asked by people, how were your parents? Were your parents accepting? Right. Like I've heard that so often. I'm like, oh my God, yes. You know, my parents didn't throw me out. Some people's parents did, but that shouldn't be the, that shouldn't be the only frame that we see and I think it also, it puts us in this frame of thinking about the moment of rejection is when you come out to your parents and not recognizing that your lifetime can be filled with moments of rejection that are, can be even more powerful and harmful that, and that we're all doing. Our systems are, you know, things within, within society. It's not just, did your parents accept you? It's what are we doing now to accept you and welcome you and help you thrive? Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, what's your wish for healthcare 50 years from now? Like, what would you hope it would look like for the generations of trans and bisexual and Iranian-American people who come after you, what would be your hope? Oh man, there is so much, there's room to grow. And that's fantastic because it means that there's a lot of meaningful changes that we can make, little things, big things that create um, a more welcoming space for people. I think that um, in my perfect world, I imagine a place where I mean, I know it should go without saying, but unfortunately, we do have to have conversations where we say, I'd like to imagine a mystical, perfect future where people don't experience 
harassment and discrimination in the healthcare setting, where people actually do have access to healthcare by virtue of um, having healthcare um, or rather LGBT literate providers all around them, no matter where they live, even if they're out in rural areas, that every single healthcare provider has a lot of um, LGBTQ medical training so that they feel comfortable encountering the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer patient, um, that insurance companies stop being um, a source of limitation for people, that uh, when transgender people specifically need to encounter, um, you know, when a trans man needs a pap smear, that he's able to get one. When uh, a trans woman uh, needs breast augmentation surgery, that it's not considered cosmetic. Um, and where there isn't violence, I mean, un unfortunately, mm. unfortunately, violence and, and sexual violence in the healthcare setting does happen, especially against transgender people, but against people in the broader queer umbrella. So it feels a little bit sad to say, like, in my amazing, perfect future where everything goes right, there won't be violence, but it does, I think, have to be said. Wow. That, but it says a lot. I mean, and when your dream of a perfect future is hoping that people have the right not to be hurt by healthcare, that that says a lot. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This was amazing. And I'm looking forward to following your career over the years. Your patients are so lucky to have you and your institution is lucky to have you as, as well. Thank you so much. I've really appreciated speaking to you. Um, and I want to say, as this goes out there, um, I know that um, as a fourth year medical student, I had a lot of questions about navigating the residency process as a transgender person. Uh, and I know that I spoke to it somewhat broadly, but if anyone out there is listening and they have specific questions, I hope that I can encourage them to contact me. I won't have all of the answers, but maybe I'll be able to say, I don't know, maybe I'll be able to help out as best I can answer a couple of the questions that they have. Oh, that would be fantastic. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Would it be through Twitter or um, email? What would you prefer? Sure. Um, people are more than welcome to contact me through Twitter. I am at Eponymics on Twitter, um, or they could send me an email. Uh, an email that they can contact me at would be C, as in Cameron, N, Chalker, C-H-A-L-K-E-R, at gmail.com. And if anyone wants to shoot Fantastic. me a line, I'm here anytime. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and good luck to you with the rest of your residency. Thank you again. You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and online at www.em-podcast.com.